you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 20, this is one of the more famous passages of the Bible. And we come to it now, I think, in context. We're not just opening our Bibles now to look at the issue of the millennium, but we have been going now for some time, I think it's been, I don't know if it's been quite a year, but it seems like it, that we've been now going through the book of Revelation on Sunday nights. And we've now come to this well-known text. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to your truth, 
that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like, what the earth would be like, if Christians were in charge? Have you thought about that in the context even of our country, what the laws might be? Perhaps you, as you thought about that, you might dream a bit of a dream and hope that maybe there would be a day when more Christians would be in Congress, when perhaps it would be more obvious that the justices of the Supreme Court would follow God's law, when our president would stand upon the scriptures and would hold forth. Perhaps even throughout the world this would be the case. If only the church and Christians would be in charge, then the world would be a much better place. It would be safer for the gospel. It would be better for people. There would be great joy. Why can't this be the case? Because we look around, don't we, and we see theft, lies, murder, and persecution. And we wonder what it would be like if Christians were in charge. This evening we are going to see briefly that Christians are in charge. But being in charge is not what we think it means. Having things according to our fashion. Telling other people what to do. But this text here this evening shows us that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reigning right now with Jesus. We don't need to wait for some future date. We don't need to wait for a series of events to happen. Right now, we are reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ and He reigns over all. And all that we see that is wrong in the world is because that reign is not in its final, consummate state. But it is rather in its intermediate state. It is not what it will be, but it is after the fashion of that. That's what the millennium is, we will see. The millennium is not some future off in the, in the spans of time, golden age, when everything will be perfect on earth. The millennium is the reign of Jesus Christ over His people and throughout the world. And so what I'd like us to see here from this text, again, very briefly, is first the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan that is at the inauguration of this millennium. And then we will see the reign of the saints themselves that occurs during this millennium. And then finally, we will see the defeat of Satan and the final judgment that occurs at the end of this millennium. The binding of Satan, the reign of the saints, the defeat of Satan, and the final judgment. Well, let's begin then by looking at the binding of Satan here at the beginning of chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit and shut it up, that he might not deceive the nations any longer. 
Now, this is one of the most famous and most controversial passages in all of the Bible. This is the only passage in which the term millennium occurs. Millennium is a Latin term that basically means thousand years. And so it describes this thousand year period. And there are some who interpret it in various ways. There are those who are called premillennialists who believe that the return of Jesus Christ occurs before the millennium. That He comes secretly to establish a millennial reign in which He is King. And then after a thousand years, in which He sits on a literal throne, an actual chair in the actual city of Jerusalem, that after that, there is the second coming proper and the last judgment. And the key to this for them is looking at Revelation 19 and 20 and seeing them in chronological order. You remember we looked at Revelation 19 and we saw the the great rejoicing in heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then the, the rider on the white horse, our Lord Jesus Christ, coming and defeating the beast and the false prophet. And now again here there is, to them, a chronological, literal passage. There are others who look at this passage who go by the name of post-millennialists. And if a premillennialist believes that the return of Jesus is before the millennium, a post-millennialist believes that the return of Jesus comes after the millennium. That the millennium is a thousand-year period of time, a sort of golden age in which the gospel goes forward and changes the world so that it becomes Christian. And such that... Christian influence is so great that sin is not eradicated, but but almost. So the millennium is a place where maybe not every single time, but 99% of the time, kids obey their parents. And husbands and wives don't fight. And the law is upheld. And after that period of time, then the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And for post-millennialists, this often is because They want to see the victory of the gospel, and if the gospel does not succeed apart from a last, second, cataclysmic coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that's not really a real victory. We want to see the gospel at work in the world so that we can point pagans to it and say, look, the gospel works. People telling the truth. People sharing. People loving one another. But I don't think either one of these views deals properly with the text. The view that I think is most helpful in looking at this text is the view that has the worst label. It's called amillennialism. Now, the problem with the label is, you know when you put the letter A in front of a word, it basically means not, right? An atheist is someone who does not believe in God, right? And so if you put ah in front of millennial, then obviously the text and your pastor doesn't believe there even is a millennium, right? He's against the millennium. There's not a millennium. But I think maybe a better way to describe this is to talk about it as a realized millennium. And that is, we are not, as Christians, looking forward to a period of time in which the earth will be perfect. We are living and reigning right now in the millennium. 
The millennium is not a literal thousand year period of time. It is not 365,000 days. It is the period of time from Jesus' first coming to His second coming. It is the time of the church. It is the time of the gospel. It is the time that the kingdom goes forward. Now, why do I think this? I think this because that's what the text says. And let's look here then at the beginning of chapter 20. This angel comes down and binds Satan. And this language here is, is figurative language. I mean, how many of us really think that Satan, who is a spirit, who is a demon, can be held fast by a literal iron chain? How many of us think that there could be a literal bottomless pit? It doesn't make sense. But then what does the author mean? What does John mean when he says an angel came down and he has a key and he binds Satan with a chain in a pit, in a prison? What's happening here is this is figurative, apocalyptic language. Let's not forget that Revelation is an apocalypse. You remember what we said apocalypse was like. It's like the comic book of the Bible. Big, bold colors. Huge balloons full of text with exclamation points and question marks. It treats our eyes as much as our minds. And so here John wants to give to us a picture of what is happening to Satan. How he is cast into prison. How he is bound. And so you might ask, but if Satan is bound, and if we're living in the millennium, then you're not looking around very well, Pastor Greco. Because Satan is alive and at work all over the place. All we have to do is read the newspaper. We see sin, destruction everywhere. And that's because what's being described here is not the complete and utter binding of Satan. That will be reserved to his final punishment. No, he is bound, and he is bound in a very specific kind of way. Do we see this? He is sealed up, and there is a purpose as to why he is sealed up. It is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This is the era of the gospel. This is how Satan is not able to deceive the nations. Now, before you think, well, that seems to happen today too, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of John or a turn of the New Testament Jew. What was the world like in the days of John and Peter and Paul? Where was God worshipped? Where did the word of God Go forth. Well, there was Israel, and much of Israel rejected the gospel. And there were the Samaritans had come to believe, and then some people up in Antioch, and then further in Greece, and then we hear of Italy, but, but still a rather small portion of the world. And that is as it is expanding. Because if we go a bit further back in history, if we look at the time of Amos or Isaiah, or we go back to David or Abraham, who knows the Lord but only a very small sliver of people in the promised land? You see, people like the Ethiopian eunuch, people like the Queen of Sheba, are known by the fact that they're an exception to the rule. The whole earth is covered in darkness. Every nation worships the devil. The gospel was not in China. It was not in deepest Africa. 
America had no inkling of God and His Word. The whole earth was covered in darkness. But now what is the case? Are all of the nations deceived? Some of the places in which the gospel flourishes most today are places where the church has not been established for many, many centuries. Think of the church in China and its explosion. Where are the most orthodox, Bible-loving, Bible-believing Christians in the world? Are they in Holland, where the Synod of Dort was? Are they in Scotland, our heirs in the Reformation? Are they in France, the land of John Calvin? No. It's in China. It's in India. It's in South America. It's in Africa. God is bringing the gospel all over the earth. What you need to hear, Christian, is the church is winning, not losing. The gospel is going forward. Satan is bound, and he cannot deceive the nations at this time. He cannot stop the gospel from going forth into the darkest places of the earth. He cannot gather together all of the nations to come against the church. You see, that's what it means to say Satan is bound. It's what our Lord meant in Matthew 12, verse 29. When he talks about in connection with his coming, he says, How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? The exact same word used in Revelation 20. Do you remember how the gospel first became obvious to Jesus' disciples that it was victorious throughout the earth? Do you remember the passage in Luke chapter 10 when the 70 were sent out by Jesus on a short-term missions trip? You know what a short-term missions trip is, don't you? Some of you have been on them. They're enjoyable things to go on and you can make an impact in some people's lives, but you don't really expect much to happen, do you? You fix someone's home, you help some missionaries, but it's short term, right? But the 70 go out and they come back and what is their reaction? Lord, you're not going to believe it. We went and we healed people and, and we bound demons. It was unbelievable. Even the demons are subject to us. The success was unbelievable to them. Do you remember how Jesus responds? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. You see, it's the beginning of the end of Satan's usurping rule over the earth. The gospel has come. The march is on. The victory is in sight. I've used this example with you before, but it's, it's a wonderful illustration when Jesus Christ comes the first time and does the work that the Father had prepared for Him, when He brings the Gospel, dies upon the cross, and purchases forgiveness of sins, that is not the end of the war. But it's like D-Day. After D-Day, it was really just a matter of time, wasn't it? There was no thought then that the Americans and the English would just get tired and pack up and go home, right? They were there and they were there to stay and they were going to press home and onward to victory. And everyone who knew, everyone who was not deceived, knew that victory was inevitable. It's why there was, after D-Day, a plot to kill Hitler because those who were in the German army knew that there was no way they were possibly going to win. 
And yet there were still those who lashed out. Just as Satan does now. What Satan does to you and to me now is the lashing out of a defeated enemy. He has no power over you. That doesn't mean he can't hurt you. That doesn't mean you don't have sickness. That doesn't mean you don't have pain. But you don't fear the one who can cause you distress. You fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. You see, Satan is bound and the gospel goes forward. And there will come a time, Revelation tells us, in which Satan will be released for a little while and that is also for a purpose that he might gather up all of the enemies of the church together. Gather them all up to surround the church. And we'll see what will happen with that in just a moment. Next, let's look at verse 4 and following. In the reign of the saints, John looks and then he sees thrones, and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. And he sees the souls of those who had been beheaded. They'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. And so we look at this passage here from verse 4 to verse 6, and we ask ourselves, I think, a few questions. The first is, when is this happening? When are these saints reigning? And I think the answer is, it's happening at the same time that Satan is bound. It's during this millennium, during this period of time in which the gospel goes forward, the saints reign with Jesus. This is happening here. It's a shorter period of time than it seems, but it is also longer than we might expect. This thousand-year span of time is God's allotted time for the church and the gospel. Well, where is it that this is occurring? Because if you're like me, the last time I looked, that was a chair, not a throne. I'm not sitting on a chair, reigning I'm not decreeing laws. I'm not vetoing bills. I think the text makes clear to us that this is happening in heaven. John sees thrones, and every time in Revelation that we see the word throne, it occurs in heaven. We also see that there are believers here, and they are disembodied souls. They are souls who have been beheaded. And so they are reigning on earth, and it is a reign of all of the people of God, not just some, because it, there is no exclusion here. You see, John sees the souls of those who had been beheaded, but he also sees those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and who had not received its mark on their foreheads or in their hands. You see, what's happening here is this is the reign of God's people. It is a heavenly reign, however. It doesn't occur on earth. It is as our Lord brings the gospel forward by His Word and Spirit. But what kind of a reign is this? We see this in the fact that they are resurrected. They are come to life in verse 4. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And this reign, this coming to life, this First resurrection is the spiritual life of the saints. It is those who have life from death. Now, I want you to think about that. 
that the great victory, the great victory that leads to reigning, the great victory that leads to life is death. It's martyrdom. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. Because our Lord said, you must die before you can live. Isn't that exactly the victory that our Lord achieved Himself on the cross? Eternal life for His people through death? You see, this is not a physical resurrection because death itself has not been conquered. Some want to see here this resurrection is a resurrection from literal graves of physical bodies of people. But there's only one problem with that. Death still occurs in chapter 20. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that when the last enemy has been defeated, when Jesus puts down all his enemies and the last enemy is death, then the resurrection occurs. So you see, this is not a physical resurrection. It is spiritual life for the people of God right now. And that helps you and me right now. Because we are living and reigning right now with Jesus. Jesus is victorious right now. We have spiritual life right now. We don't have to worry about whether this will happen in the future. We reign with Jesus now. Does that give you comfort as you think through the difficulties of your life? To know that Jesus is on the throne and you are on the throne with Him? That He is preparing a place for you? That you are safe in the Lord. Well, after we see this, we then turn to verse 7 and we see the defeat of Satan and the final judgment. And we see that Satan is released again from prison and he goes out again to deceive the nations. He gathers them up from every place. And now it seems that for sure he will be victorious the saints had been reigning, but now Satan has been able to gather his forces. And look at the, at the text. It reads like, like an old western, at least to my ears here in Texas. They gather together, and their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain and surrounded the camp of the saints. And I think of these old westerns where you've got the fort, right? Where you've got like 15 guys with 42 bullets. And one guy cracks jokes, and another guy's serious, and then there's an army around them. And it seems like there's no way that they'll ever hold out or ever escape, right? And these are the sorts of things in which we expect the story to end, kind of like, if I can borrow from Texas history, the Alamo, in which the pleasure we get from it is that they held out for a while and killed lots of Mexicans, right? They didn't win, did they? They lost. The great thing about the Alamo is the defeat was so demoralizing that later on the Texans won another victory in another battle. But you see, that's not how God's battles are fought. This is not defeat. Satan thinks he has the church exactly where he wants it. He's surrounded it. He's gathered together all of his forces. And look at what happens. There isn't even a battle. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the enemies of God. So let me ask you this. Do you feel some days like you are surrounded by the forces of evil and wickedness and there is no escape? Look at Revelation 20. 
It's not about some future here-off golden age. Revelation 20 reminds us that Satan seeks to destroy the church and that he never will because God wins the battle. Does that thrill your heart? It does for me because, let's face it, the news can be very depressing. The state of the church can be very depressing. But Satan will be defeated. It will be a swift defeat. And that defeat will lead to the final judgment and the ushering in of final victory. We see this here at the end of chapter 20. In verse 11, a great white throne. And Jesus Christ is seated on it. And there is a final judgment that is to come. And this reminds us that this judgment is final for everyone. All of the dead, great and small. The homeless beggar and Napoleon. All of the powerful and all of the forgotten. They all come to be judged. And they are not judged on their deeds before men. They are judged on their deeds before God. They are judged first and foremost by their deed as to whether or not they trusted by faith in Jesus Christ. And then whether that faith bore fruit in their lives. That's what it means when it says that they are judged according to their deeds. Because unless their name is written in the Lamb's book of life, no matter what they have done, will save them. Do you wonder tonight if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? You know, there is a, a sense in which thinking about that can take us to flights of fancy and depress us. But there are two wise theologians, pastors, that I think are helpful to us here. If we want to be sure that our names are written in the book of life, we need to not search into our own election or think philosophically. We need to think according to John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon. John Calvin said that Jesus Christ is the mirror of our election. If we want to know if we are elect, we look at Jesus Christ and what He has done on our behalf. And we see our election there. Charles Spurgeon put it even more directly in his witty fashion. He said, do you want to know if you are elect, if you are written in the Lamb's book of life? Then choose Christ. Because if you have chosen Christ, then your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, it is not to us to look into the secret counsels of God. It is unto us to have faith in Jesus. To know that He is our Savior, that He is our victor, that He is our protector. And if we realize this, then nothing can frighten us. Nothing can demoralize us. Because we know the end of all history. Jesus wins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have indeed prepared a place for us. And we ask this evening, Lord, that You would remind us that You are on our side. That You have won the victory for us. That You have given us a place to reign in heaven. And so, Lord, we thank You.
And we ask that you would give us the means that we need, the hope that we need to follow after you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.